1: Matt Quinn manages TIBCO's day-to-day operations and is instrumental in the growth and development of TIBCO's products and technologies, including the TIBCO Connected Intelligence Cloud. Formerly serving in executive roles, including Chief Technology Officer and Executive Vice President of Products and Technology, Matt has spent more than 20 years with TIBCO, leading large-scale transformations of organizational structure and product strategy. He received his BA in Computer Science and his Master's of Applied Science Information Technology from RMIT University, Melbourne. Matt, welcome to the Second in Command podcast.
0: Great. Great to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: I was um, just before we hopped on, I hopped onto your website just to um, to see what TIBCO was and I realized it was completely pointless for me to try to figure that one out because it was way over my head on the tech side of things. But you guys are clearly not a startup either. So why don't you just give us a bit of a, a background as to what TIBCO is, what you guys focus on and um, I started reading like the integration of of stuff, and then I was like, I don't get this. <laughs> so so I, the,
0: the, there's there's kind of two ways to to look at Tipco. The one is where we've come from, uh, and then the other is the very simple kind of where we what we do today. And so what I, what I would say today is something pretty simple. Um, if you look at the enterprises today, uh, very complicated, lots of systems, lots of applications, lots of technologies being used. And one of the core things about all of these applications is they're all in silos. Mm -hmm. So I may have Salesforce automation. That's separate from my HR system, which is separate from all of my other downstream systems. And so where Tipco started was very simply about connecting all of those systems together. Right? So making sure that if, um, uh, if somebody changed their home address in the HR system, that that would flow to all the other downstream systems in the enterprise so that everyone was up to date. And So it's it seems really simple, but yeah. if you look at large corporations and all the data that they've got in all these different places.
1: Massively you know, The number
0: of times you've got a, a, a piece of mail from a telecommunication provider, communication provider with the wrong address, uh, even though you change changed it 10 years ago. I mean, all of these things are, are stuff that we try and solve uh, because there's massive amounts of value in that data. And so that's the, that's the first part. Right. Once, you've, once you've been able to connect all these systems, you've got all this data, um, you've got it all available, you want to be able to understand it, right? You want to be able to analyze it. You want to see whether there are patterns occurring uh, in your data that may be a, an opportunity or a threat. And it could be something very simple like uh, a machine having an outage is an important piece of information to know. Or it could be an order that failed to get delivered or a plane that's late because of weather. Um, And all of these things become information that can lead to business opportunities or, you know, at least early warnings for business threats. Uh, And then the piece in the middle of that, um, which kind of brings both of them together, is all about unification. You know, um, what we uh, as an industry deal with is because you've got so much data in so many different places, it all looks slightly different. You have to have a standard language. And so the unified piece for us is all about creating that uh, uh, that standard language between all of these systems, the analytics, the people partners, so that we're all sharing that same shared consciousness. Which sounds way too high level for what no, I was aiming for no. when I started. Ha!
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. For whenever we started, this is way more complicated. So, okay. So it's starting to make sense. So are you very intensive on the people side? Then you're not just a hardware player. You're very intensive on the people and engineering side.
0: It's, it's, it's actually more so uh, everything that we do is, is software based. We do have some bits and pieces of hardware, but, but largely it's all about software and, yeah. and uh, stuff. Almost everything that we do has some sort of a flow on impact to the people side of the business. You know Whether it be, hey, you, know, Mr. Lift, you know, Mr. operator in a transportation company, um, you can now see up to the minute data on what's actually going into your trucks. Great, right? We've changed that person's life in terms of giving them visibility into information they never had before. But a large amount of what we also do is transformation on the IT side, which is if you put these technologies in, they break down silos but they're also breaking down silos amongst development teams, right? Because as soon as you start to integrate these systems, you're now part of a collective whole rather than these individual domains and silos. So it's, you know, I've, I've come to the belief that you can have the best technology, but it's, if it, if it is impossible to get in and it doesn't make changes, then it's probably not that useful. So there's always an element of transformation on the people side.
1: So are, are your people then working with the engineers inside of these big corporations, or are you doing something and handing it to them and they're integrating it on their end? You must be deep into them.
0: So actually, look, that's changed. Um, go back 15 years ago, it was a pretty traditional enterprise software sale, which means that uh, you would have engineers build the product, they would hand it off to the, the professional services people, the, implementation, the people who are doing implementation work, they would work very closely with, uh, with the customers, with their engineering departments, to put the engineering work that we built uh, in place. And for a good, good 15 years, that was kind of the way that uh, the world worked. Mm. Uh, cloud computing changed that because what it meant was that you could now access the technology in multiple different ways, not just kind of come to us and say, hey, can you give us... You know some some uh, technology, and can you help us implement it? And it really is this uh, this notion of almost democratization of, of information technology. Right? Okay. If you want it, if you want it, how do you want it? Right? It used to be I want something, and the vendor would say, "Have it this way." Now it is I want it. I want it to look like this. I want it to be delivered through this channel. I want it to be uh, applicable to this type of developer. Um, you know, we've all become search. <laughs>
1: Right, it's incredible. It's a huge, huge customization. So, how many employees are you guys running? And are, you're clearly a global company then as well.
0: Yes, uh, global footprint. Um, probably today we're just a, a shade over 4,200 employees.
1: Okay. And then, so
0: you know, we're not we're not uh, you know we're not forty thousand, but we're also not twenty.
1: Right. <laughs> so, so when you started with the organization twenty odd years ago, what was the size of the company back then?
0: That's actually a good question. So when I started twenty two years ago, which makes me sound really old, crazy, right? Although I have a funny, I have a funny story about that. So I, uh, so my father worked for the same company for thirty years, and wow. I used to give him, I used to give him a ton of crap for working for the same company for thirty years. And of course, when I entered the industry, I was like, Dad, you know, come on, man, you've got to like do three years here, do three years there. And you've got to build your career. You've got to build your resume. And, and he's like, okay, I get that son. So I did one three-year stint, and then I joined Tipco. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that was, you know, kind of 22 years ago. So it's, um, so when I joined, uh, we were probably about 150, maybe 200 employees, okay. mostly out of Palo Alto in, uh, in California. Yeah. Uh, we had offices in New York london and sydney in melbourne which is where i joined
1: oh no kidding so you joined in melbourne and then we started working for them back in palo Alto. where where are you where's the head office the bay area so
0: the head office is the bay area um so actually 22 years ago we were involved in this at the time a very unique project uh, all of the electricity companies in australia were deregulating and creating a market right because at that t- before then it was all very fixed and all very government controlled. So they created a marketplace. They needed some technology that would do real-time uh, uh, data collection and settlement, right? Because you're trying to settle the amount of megawatts that have been consumed and, and produced at any time so you can bill accurately. And so it was it was a strange consortium of people. It was Tipco, it was Fujitsu, Sun, Oracle, and I'm trying to think that there was another player as well. They got brought in to build a to build a system. Great first experience, um, and then from there I went to uh, to London for a while. Uh, I lived in Houston um, uh, for a couple of years, uh, moved back to London, and then uh, went to uh, to Palo Alto. Having done my my stint out in the regions, I uh, I came back to uh, to the head office. Okay. A, Strange experience.
1: I'd love to to have you share a little bit on that. I mean, I've, I've coached CEOs and teams now in 28 countries, so I've had some exposure to it, but most people don't see what you've been able to see in terms of really kind of being embedded with these different companies and truly seeing the culture and, and, um, you know, not just the language difference, like in London turnover means revenue and in the U S it means losing employees. What's the, what are the differences in terms of leadership and style and, um, you know the way companies approach business between Australia, London, um, you know Houston, and, you know Texas, and and California. What would, what have you seen?
0: Well, I, I tell you, the, the funniest one for me was uh, it is still the language. So there are both professional and personal language choices that you make mm-hmm. in each one of those places that still to this day bring a bring a, a smile to my lips. One one is uh, in in. In the UK and in Australia, to cross something out is to is or to tick to tick something off is to cross something out. Yeah. And so I still remember being in a in a um, in a meeting and say, well, just just tick that one off. We've finished that that use case. And the person's like, why are you angry at the piece of paper? And I'm, <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean? What do you mean? And the other was in in every other part of the planet, a sweater is a jumper. Especially right. in Australia and, uh, and the UK and I yep. I was living in Houston It's freezing cold in the office buildings even though it's boiling hot outside because of air conditioning and so I saw I'm, I'm just going to go find a jumper and of course the guy that I was working with who worked for Tipco still works for Tipco thought that that was the funniest thing he'd ever heard that this you know this this, Australian, this young Australian kid was going to put on a jumper a jumper
1: yeah. I had, I had one where we had uh, some friends over from Australia and some, they were starting to work with our company with 1-800-GOT-JUNK and I um, was walking down. Oh, I love
0: those guys. (laughs)
1: Yeah. So we, we took that company to Australia 15 years ago, but they, um, our Aussie guy from, from Sydney was in, in Vancouver and we were walking down a street and we came across a store called Roots. And he started laughing. He goes, you're kidding, right? You have a store called Roots. And I'm like, yeah, why? He <laughs> goes, in Australia, that means like to fuck. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then the logo on the Roots is a beaver. So he was dying laughing to have like a beaver. Like, he was just like, this is too much. Anyway, yeah. Like, yeah, yep, yep. cultural. All right. So what about, what about, the, what about the leadership styles? Do they, do they manage businesses differently? Do they think differently? Or is it pretty much the same, same, do you think?
0: It It is. Um, it is very different in all three places, and I I spent a lot of time in Germany as well with uh, uh, people like Deutsche Bank and and others. Mm. Uh, you know, look one of the one of the biggest lessons I learned was you can't stereotype a country and their business practices because while things are different, um, you can't make those types of gross assumptions. Uh, because ultimately, people are all individuals, um, yeah. and a good example of that is is Europe. Uh, you know, I, I guess today we're still we're still no Brexit, so I'm going to count the UK as part of uh, as part of, yeah, of of the EU. Um, you know, I look at my time in all of those countries, and 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 I could see how I learned different ways of doing business in Australia. Um, uh, for a lot of Bigger purchases of technology. Uh, everyone's quite concerned in making sure that they're making the right choice. So there's a lot of there's a lot of work that goes on up front to make sure that the the choice is the correct one. In Europe, there's a lot more focus on standardisation and and following business process and business rules, um, and they tend to like software that is much more standards centric. Uh, the US, on the whole there uh, always has felt to me of being able to make more aggressive decisions hmm. earlier on, um, you know, to, it's almost the, it's the, you know, fail fast mentality um, sure. uh, to, to look for advantages, but obviously to press at home once uh, once something's been successful. I, I mean, I'm endlessly fascinated by this. You know, I used to, I used to spend a lot of time with banks and you'd go around and you'd speak to the same banks and even outposts of the same banks in different countries and have very different kind of ways of doing business uh, even though they're all part of that kind of that macro organization. Same group. I think honestly that companies that embrace that, that different uh, are the ones that are most successful.
1: So you've had, you've had a lot of exposure over your career working with these big multinationals and the big kind of fortune five or the, the enterprise level companies and then also selling into those companies. What do you think we can learn from, from working and selling into those big organizations? What are the what are the cheat sheets of getting in those doors and selling to them, are they different? Uh,
0: this is what I would say. If you did something that worked five years ago, it won't work today. If you, if you had something that worked two years ago, it's not gonna work today. These companies are moving so rapidly and evolving so rapidly mm. that relying on your knowledge from two, three, five years ago is, is really tough. Wow! Like they, are, I think all all companies are going through a period of reinvention. Um, you know, whether it be a uh, you know kind of a bank that wants to become a software company, you know, it's the you know it's the it's the, the taxi company that's decided to deliver meals. I mean, everyone is is looking for those transformational elements, and it is changing uh, the culture of these larger corporations incredibly rapidly. While at the same time the ones that are successful in those transformations still have a uh, have a core, uh, almost a core mission, yeah. um, something that they believe in, that while their businesses may change, the tactics may change, the technology may change, there is something about who they are that has become increasingly important uh, uh, to them. And it's it used to be the brand, right? But now it's not the external brand as much as it is their internal brand about – how they want to be perceived by vendors, by customers, uh, and by their own employees. Um, so someone much smarter than me uh, was had read something to me. and It went something like: "Look, you know, people who join, uh, you know, join a, a company because of the mission; they want to achieve something. Mm-hmm. Ones who stay stay because of the values. Mm. And I think that large corporations have kind of worked that out. That people may come because it's an exciting." project and if you can yeah. get them to stay because of the core values that you represent, that's that's pretty important, especially with the uh the paucity of talent that has that you have available now.
1: That's huge actually. They join for the mission and they stay for the core values. It makes so much sense, true.
0: Yeah, and I'm I'm sure that I'm gonna misquote whoever
1: <laughs> Well it's eighty eighty six percent of all statistics are made up on the spot forty two percent of the time, <laughs> right? So we're good. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> So you've, you've clearly had to adapt then as well over the years. I mean, for, for companies this decide to be changing and you having to be working and building teams to change and work with them and then also, you know, we're, you and I are roughly the same age. We've, we've got some deeply ingrained habits and skills. How do you unlearn those? How do you continue to learn? How do you adapt? How do you, how do you kind of stay up with that rate of change?
0: I, I'd love like to say that I'm successful at that, but I think of myself like a stuck clock, so I'm at least right twice a day. Now look i I mean we we talked a little bit about this in the uh, before we started the, the podcast. I think um, when you when you learn something for the first time, you don't really take it on board mm-hmm. um, you know whether it's your parents or whether it's it's early managers, they always give you pieces of advice that and I've always struggled with taking that advice at face value when it was given. It's usually two or three afterwards. They go, "Oh, that's why it was important." Um, I think that when I started my career, I was very much the, you know, the, the abrasive, probably still am, sweary, definitely uh, individual contributor, right? It was it was less about what the team could do. It was less about team members. It was all about how smart was I and how many times could I showcase how right. smart. Um, and I, I look back at that period of my life both with great fondness because of the things that I was able to achieve, but also great sadness because it didn't enable other people's success. Mm. And I and I think that the thing that I learned is that is that while there's always that desire to just take things over and do it because you know you can do it, that team success and enabling teams to be uh, independent has become massively more important to me How do you think
1: you got over the mental hurdle that we have to get over when our company starts to evolve and we're hiring people that are clearly smarter than we are that are they're faster they're younger they're brighter they're more adept like they, they just they know code better like or they know whatever the hell we're programming in better than we could ever code like how do you get past that that you don't need to be smarter than them anymore
0: that was that was the that was a really tough thing to, to get, uh, to, to get over. I, but I realized that the thing that they lacked was the experience of having gone through different situations. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't about me being smarter or faster. It was, can I actually help them magnify their own success? And for me, that was the big, the big breakthrough was, it used to be as an individual contributor, as a developer, as a product manager, uh, and even frankly as a CTO early on in my career, before taking on big organizations, my success and my failure was all about what I could bring to the table. Yeah. Right? It was, it was about, it was about you know, my effort, it wasn't about anyone else's effort. At some point, you realize that your personal effort, while it is important, isn't as important as the impact of the entire team. Like you're one person. If you're managing people, if you're managing two thousand people, you know one person's output versus two thousand. Like it's clearly going to be two thousand. Yeah. And so when you make that mental shift. Then it becomes all about okay. So what's what's hampering somebody else's success, right? How can I provide them the opportunities? that I would have loved to have had when I was being managed early on in my career. Uh, and then the last piece is you realize is that when other people are successful, that enhances your overall success because you've helped it. You've helped make it, make it happen. If you will.
1: You, you said something that was really intriguing and it was um, like you starting to focus on showcasing their success, I think. Yep. And what I got from that was, very clearly that you, somewhere I heard this years ago, 20 or 30 years ago, that a leader's job is to get people promoted. You know, our job is to grow people and get them promoted. And it sounds like that's kind of what you've done as well as you've really, really worked to showcase them. So they get promoted. So they do well in their career, removing their obstacles. You're there supporting them, not telling them what to do.
0: Well, and that's, that's because again, you know, I'm, I'm all about learning lessons about 10 years too late. I could never understand. Early on in my career, I got very lucky because I had a couple of guys who took me under their wing and and helped me navigate the early part of my career. Effectively, almost a godfather-like figure, a couple of figures. Um, and and look, I I greatly appreciated uh, both of them early on. You know, certainly, certainly, uh, it was very helpful. But I felt like it was very tactical. It was like, well these guys are helping me because they've, you know, because, and I could never really, I could never answer that question. Why, you know, why were these, why were these guys helping me? And then I realized again, too late, I think that, that what they saw was that they had the ability to impact something greater than just themselves. And so you do have to have the ego kind of take a bit of a backseat.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, it's tough. Well, I think the hard part for me would have been because I was good at that with the people that I liked. You know, I definitely played favorites and didn't realize that I, I helped take a company from 14 employees to 3,000 and I didn't recognize the favoritism that I was playing and hanging out with the people that I liked and helping the people I liked and growing and supporting people I liked, but really just not being there as much at all mentally or emotionally or, you know, really helping to problem solve or move out for the ones that I didn't have an affinity to. And I guess that's where you can't have that, can you?
0: You can't, but it's, it's tough. I mean, that's, look, we, we, we as human beings are going to gravitate to people that we like spending time with.
1: Mm.
0: Like I, I, you know, it's, it's, you know, if you've got two choices, if if there's no other penalty and you've got two choices, person A who you like or person B and there's no penalty for which one you're going to choose, you're going to choose person A. Right. Right. And it's, um, but, but there's also, a, a, I think there's a couple of other things. One is, you know, you've also got then got to ask yourself, why don't you like working with that other person? Mm-hmm. Like, is, is there something that, that you need to change and learn? Or, or in fact, is that person in the wrong place? Like the number yeah. of times where, where I've, I've kind of suffered through having somebody uh, on, a, on a team only to change that, that person's role and seeing a completely new side of them, right Um, you you know so i sometimes i think we all we make a bunch of assumptions about how people feel and when you actually ask them (laughs) you get a completely different read
1: yeah sometimes it's putting them into the different seats some it's kind of you know maybe it's a five or ten percent of the time they're the just the alien that just don't fit but if they if you see that they've got other people in the company that they get along with then clearly it is more of a connection between you and them it's not a them issue right
0: yeah, that's true. The, the the flip side of that, and that's this goes back to this kind of the war on talent we we see and hear about. Look, I don't think that I was ever, I would ever have been considered a classic, you know, developer, an engineer. Hmm. I would not have been everyone. I would not have been, frankly, anyone's first choice as a as a rank and file developer. I was a great prototyper, and I, but I kind of sucked at the detail, hmm. um, and I. You know, I had a couple of, couple of teams early on who recognized the fact that I was great at prototyping stuff very rapidly and could come up with great ideas, but I got bored halfway through. And so they, they, they crafted, not crafted positions, but kind of crafted situations that would enhance that. And I, I think the other side of it is it's not just about making sure that you know, kind of the square peg fits in the, the right hole. It's also, frankly, about adapting your organization when you find talent while they could be irritating and may not fit the bill, are still very, very useful.
1: Well, and they fit culturally, but maybe not, you know, you may not want to hang out with them and have beer all the time, but they fit the culture and the core values of the company somehow too, right?
0: You you know, I I think, you know, everyone, anyone who has these hard and fast rules when it comes to employees, I think it's important that you communicate hard and fast rules. But I think, you know, as as a leader and a manager, you need to have flexibility and judgment. Um, and, and you can look at yourself in the mirror at the end of each day that you've made the right decision, uh, for the right reasons, which is sometimes tough when, uh, when emotion and personalities come into to play.
1: You mentioned earlier about the, um, you know, the evolution of the company and how it's changed over the years, clearly in 20 years, how has the, the evolution of the company affected as you put the war on talent? What are you doing differently now that, um, and, and how are you guys tackling this whole war on talent? What are your thoughts around it?
0: So. It's interesting because I would say that the war on talent has also coincided with, with breakthroughs and availability of collaboration software. Um, and sometimes it's a bit difficult to divorce the two. So I think that if we, if we were in the war on talent as we are today for certain roles like data science and broader AI uh, user experience, um, and if we, if we could only hire in the Bay Area, for example, it would be tough right? Because it's, you know, there's just not that many people that are going to fill those roles. Um, with collaboration tools, with Zoom that we're using currently at the, at the moment to do this, yeah, it does allow me the opportunity to explore non-traditional places for talent. Uh, and it's not offshoring. It's not nearshoring. Uh, screw that. I hate those words. It's about, you get these strange little pockets of, of expertise in in places that you wouldn't necessarily expect um and now with the technologies that we have in play you can leverage it a great example of this is is that um i have a very large uh engineering team in gutenberg um in sweden okay wow and they and they build uh the, some of the yeah you know, some of the best world-beating analytics software visual analytics so Great team, love the guys, um, work with them for years and years. The, 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 the local university just happens to specialize in data visualization and user experience. And so why wouldn't I leverage a great talent base, a phenomenal university system, and a strong leadership in that particular location? Right? I've, got, uh, you know, I've got some offices uh, just outside of Stafford, Texas. Same thing, great universities that give me access to different types of talent. It's up to me to identify that talent and to work out how it can be woven into the fabric of the corporation. And that's very different from today than what it was 10, 15 years ago when we were very, 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 you know, you, in order to make decisions, you had to live in Palo Alto. You had to live yeah. in, like, in head office.
1: I talked to a guy the other day who runs a technology company with about 300 employees based in Indianapolis. I'm like, well, first that's weird. Like, how do you find talent? He goes, dude, nobody really can afford to live in the Bay Area anywhere. So, anybody who's from Indianapolis that went to school over there wants to all come home. It goes, all right, that's reasonable. And he goes, and we've got 42 people living in Bulgaria. <laughs> I'm like, yep. where do you what? He goes, yeah, we found two, and then they found two, and then they found six, and all of a sudden we're at 42. I'm like, all right, that's
0: yeah. I mean, look, we we yeah, we, we are we are absolutely living. In in a in a virtual world, when it comes to uh, to employment with mm-hmm. the tools and technology, and I think actually, strangely enough, I'm going to put my old CTO hat on for a second. I actually think that that with with uh, improvements in AR and VR, and also the the imminent and I'll use air quotes uh, imminent uh, autonomous cars, we are going to see more and more people push out. Of uh, of major city centres like uh-huh. the Bay Area, because all of a sudden, look, what? There's no penalty if I if I have an autonomous vehicle, and I have telepresence through technologies derived from AR and VR. All of a sudden, why am I going into the office? I
1: want to live at the I, beach. I
0: get the same experience of going into an office from you know from my from my house, and if I live far away, well, it doesn't matter because I'll I'll be able to jump in my autonomous vehicle, press the go button. And then, you know, do a work day just to have, you know, maybe have a couple of in-person meetings because that's make, that makes sense. I just, you know, I think that we're on this cycle that, that we're going to continue to push people out of, the, uh, out of offices into, uh, into more virtual environments. I, you know, it'll be an experiment. I think that some people will like it. Other people uh, and other cultures, going back to your first question, um, won't like it as much.
1: Well, I think, I think a lot of where people are going to go there is even if they don't like it, they may work in co-working spaces, but they may work in cities that they want to live in. All of a sudden, Perth, Australia is going to go through a boom because it won't be on the other side of the world anymore. It'll be wherever the hell you want to live. Yep. Um, so you, you, interestingly, you mentioned AI and um I went to reality, virtual reality, artificial intelligence, automation or autonomous vehicles. This stuff is coming faster than we think it's coming as well. Now I was at the, I go to the main Ted conference every year. I've been for eight or nine years in a row and I went to uh, abundance 360 this year and it sounds like you went to Davos and we're kind of around kind of the future of some of this stuff coming very quickly. How do you think companies are without getting trapped into this whole like um, there seems to be such a trap with, oh, like two years ago, everyone was about the blockchain, right? And so everyone wasted like inordinate amount of money and time doing stuff that all of a sudden didn't really matter, or maybe it doesn't matter. I don't know, or maybe it will. But how do companies start experimenting and poking their heads around this stuff? Or do they just sit and wait for it and not try to get in as the the innovators and early adopters? Do they wait to become the early majority? Like, do they wait a little bit versus wasting their time? Or can they afford it with time?
0: yeah I, that's a it, this is a this is one of the biggest fears that companies face today, and that is the, the fear of being left behind,
1: because mm, it's um, coming so fast now.
0: It, it is, but it's it's also like uh, the, the analogy that I'd kind of draw here, it's a little bit like um, you know, we have access to a lot more news today. Than we did 20 years ago and certainly what we did 30 years ago and so news and social media amplifies a lot of stuff mm-hmm. and i think the same is true with companies in that their fear of being left behind is being amplified by the uh, the sheer amount of, of media that's now currently available right? right you could kind of say well you know my my competition may or may not be doing something 20 years ago well now you, you know exactly what your competition is doing because they've plastered it all over social media and LinkedIn and facebook so so all of a sudden that 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 cycle time for innovation has got faster. what we 've seen successful companies do is is two things: one is you have to pick your spots you can't innovate in parallel for everything that's going on right you've got to say look i've got a thesis, my thesis is that AI is going to allow me." to optimize blah. Okay, well then go deep. Go quickly, go deep, fail fast, you know, um you know have low expectations but but high aspirations um and and go for it. And maybe ARVR as an example may not be as interest, even though intellectually they may be interesting, it may just not be for you. So you've got to be able to pick your spots but you've yeah. got to go deep. And the number of companies that just do surface stuff like, oh yeah I looked at blockchain, it wasn't for me. Well, great, but you've got to do more than just look at it.
1: Yeah, or don't get involved at all, right? Just like stay out of it and keep, stay focused.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, keep tabs on it, you know, understand what's, what's going on. But this is one of my, my not my complaint, if you will, but I, I think that because there is so much noise, there's so much media, there's so much information, it's so accessible now that we are, we are in danger of surface skimming a lot of great innovation because we, we're not, we don't have the time or the inclination to go deep.
1: Sure. Is your, is your marketing and sales approach changing? Um, do you, are your teams doing it differently than they did 10 years ago?
0: Yeah, look, I, the sales and marketing ends up being a little bit of a pendulum swing. You know, stuff that worked 10 years ago doesn't work today, but get, you know, wait another five years and it may work again. Right. Um, you know, when, when cloud computing and as a service uh, software became kind of the thing, the view was that you didn't really need to do any marketing anymore because it was all on the web. Um, you didn't really need to have salespeople because, you know, people would just click on the button and buy. Well, the reality is, is that, yes, there are, some, there are some people who like to buy that way. And there are others who like to buy from people and build relationships because mm-hmm. these are big, complicated systems. And so you see, you know, we see, we see this less about change, but more of a refinement. You know, you don't need to have the salesperson going out to the company that really just wants to do everything digital. Yeah. Vice versa, the person who doesn't want to click on a, on a web link to go buy some expensive piece of software actually wants to speak to a, a real human being understanding those situations is the biggest change that we've seen.
1: That's interesting. Just understanding. Okay.
0: Look, it's, it's, uh, here's an example that i give. When you go to, to check in a, uh, to a plane, if you're taking a flight somewhere, yeah, there are people that you'll see that will absolutely go line up, go speak to somebody, get that paper piece of ticket to go through security.
1: Right, as are other
0: and, there, and yet there are other people who do not want to speak to a single human being until they're quietly strapped in the seat to go wherever they're about to go.
1: Did you know that Uber Black just allows you now to opt out of talking to the driver?
0: Oh, really? <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. They finally <laughs> allow it. Point. You can click a little button saying, "like open to casually chatting," kind of focused, having a shitty day, just want to be by myself. You get to. Ch-
0: <laughs> awesome, you know, uh, But that's, that's it. I mean, people self-select like, you know, you, there's a lot of software that, that we, that we look at where we just don't want to talk to anyone. We just, we just want to do it. We know yeah. what we've got to do. And that's, you know, so that changes the way that you proceed with, uh, with the way you sell, it changes the way you market, but, but you've got to still have those common core values across, regardless of the channel that you're selling or marketing to.
1: Mm-hmm. Are companies overcomplicating their business and trying to integrate everything and make it all talk together, or has it just become some of the necessary evils? Or you're not even really trying to make it all work together; you're just trying to make sure the data works, aren't you?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's. Or is
1: that the same thing?
0: Uh, it is and it isn't. I, you know, we've we've always we've always kind of said tightly integrated, loosely coupled. Um, You know, in, in other words. You want the data to flow and be correct, but you also need the flexibility to swap pieces in and out if you want to upgrade a system or or get rid of anything. Um, And for the most part, customers really try and stay away from making their big systems very brittle Mm. uh, by having them so tightly wound together that you can't make any changes. Because we lived through that era. If you go back kind of 15 years ago with the big ERP implementations, Everyone customized the hell out of those things. And so when they went to upgrade or they went to do anything else, that system was so brittle that they couldn't touch it. Right. You know, it's the same reason why we still have mainframe systems. We've customized those mainframe systems so much that you can't, A, you can't find people who can program them anymore. Right. But you don't want to touch the, the business data because you don't know the reverberations. It's like a spider web. You know, it's like, what was, that, what was that, uh, that movie? It was a goofy movie. About a uh, uh, about a huge spider, and the, and the uh, it, it was one of the B movies. But I remember the the scientist comes up to the to the um, to the web, and he and he touches this huge web, and you can see the reverberation in the mm-hmm. background. You see the big spider, and, and systems are a little bit like that. They're so so connected that if you make them too connected, yeah, you know, change on one side can have this ripple effect throughout the rest of the spider web.
1: Well, did you guys get hit with this uh, Salesforce outage last weekend?
0: We narrowly, narrowly avoided it.
1: My, uh, my girlfriend works with um, Ticketmaster and is in charge of the engineering teams, in, the Salesforce engineering teams inside of, sales, or of Ticketmaster for Salesforce and, and holy moly, man, did they get creamed and it was a, it was a big, big, big outage kind of yeah. throughout all of North America.
0: It, it was I, look we went through the um uh the the stuff with dyn a couple of years ago when we had the uh you know the the, the huge uh bot attack against dyn that brought down the dns yeah or just about everyone's dns look i i'd say a couple of things uh one thing that that i was that look no one ever wants to live through an outage we've all got services so Throwing shade to another vendor because their stuff went down because of an, an error. Like it doesn't matter. We're all, we're all kind of engineers at that level. Um, I was impressed with the way that Salesforce was very open and transparent yeah, about very, the yeah Very much. You know, look, I got to say taking on a global call to talk through the issue live.
1: Oh uh, yeah. On
0: a conference I'm, call. That's, that's tough. That's tough, tough work.
1: I listened in on about 10 of them over the weekend. I listened in on about 10 of the calls and I was really impressed at how strong they were. Like, really, 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 really strong and understanding, like, deep understanding of the problem and the issues and the customers and state of calm. And I was like, damn, I could not work in that space. Like, those guys are seriously professional.
0: Oh, yeah. And so, I, you know, so look, everyone, look, mistakes are all mistakes always happen. You know, sometimes the mistake is because somebody hit the wrong button, which we've seen before. It, oftentimes it's how you respond mm. that is the real you know I think is the real kind of testament to, to character and this and again we, we talk about you know staying for the you know coming for the mission and staying for the value I think that there's probably a lot of people at salesforce who looked at that situation and said yeah that was a boneheaded mistake that they made but man you know how is it to work for a company that was that was stro- so strong in their conviction around making sure that their customers trust them, that mm-hmm. they're able to do those things. I mean, there's stuff to learn from that, absolutely.
1: Yeah, it was fun. And,
0: and that's, look, that's the other thing that I would say, over all these years, you never ever stop learning. If you think you've got it, if you think you've got the answer, you're probably wrong.
1: So that was actually my next question was, if you were thinking about learning and growing of your team, of the kind of the two layers below you, you know, your direct reports and their direct reports, what do you try to get them, or how do you focus them on learning, or are there certain skills that you're trying to, you know, that you kind of identify as more important than others, or?
0: So, so it depends a little bit. I've got a fairly diverse set of teams that that report up to me. And so, the first thing is, you, every team has a different level of maturity, and you have to understand that, right? A group that's been working together for 30 years is vastly different than the group you threw together yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have to recognize the fact that there are differences. The second thing is when you look at teams, you, you have to think about what mission that they've got, what are they trying to accomplish and what are their, what are the things they're going to get, get in the way of their success. And what we found strangely enough, the best way to find that out is to actually say what's standing between you and total success because they, you know, they are the domain expertise. That's what you're paying them for. And, uh, and what we try and do is is for that that level below, kind of the level below, is is we're trying to make sure that they believe in what we call the art of the possible. And what that means is, is that I don't want these teams to go in there and say, oh, I can't do that because we tried it before and it failed. I can't do that because someone told me not to do it. You know, I can't do that because it's probably wrong. We want them to, to be, you know, to, to think about the art of the possible.
1: That's great. And
0: then, and then to kind of, think about how to apply that to what they're trying to what they're trying to do, and then use their managers and their managers' managers as the people to help them with their success.
1: That's super cool. I I love that phrase, the art of the possible too.
0: Yeah, I stole that from my old CEO.
1: No, it's brilliant. We we had <laughs> was, a We had a team meeting at 1-800-GOT-JUNK 20 years, almost 20 years ago, 19, 18 years ago, and it was our top five franchisees with the leadership team. And it was kind of, we were very early stage, but it was a a lot of friction in the meeting where the franchisees wanted a lot and we wanted a lot and we were kind of arguing and we all wanted to grow the company, but we couldn't get on the same page. And then one of the franchisees stood up and he said, look, for the next two days, how about we just approach every idea and every problem with what if we could, right? That art yep. of the possible, like what if we could do it? What if it did work? And we, we did it for two days and damn if we didn't come up with some really, really great great stuff.
0: Yeah, it, it's, it is amazing. Look, I mean, um, you know, that, that, I, that I can definitely attribute for, to, uh, to Vivek Ranadiba, who's our uh, founder, uh, now the, uh, the owner of the Sacramento Kings. Um, and, and he always used to challenge us. You know uh, you know, and his, his, his focus was a little bit more on the on the customer side, which is help the customers understand the the art of the possible, right
1: That's super cool.
0: because everyone comes in with preconceived notions and and it's just you know it can be dangerous because you're not really thinking of and i was I was talking to my wife the other day about this, sometimes as a as a senior leader you get so caught up in what you can't do. You forget about what you can do. And I know that sounds very pithy, but, but, um, sometimes you say, sometimes you you just be daydreaming and say, well, man, that'd be really cool if I could do X. And then you're like, well, hang on, I'm the CEO of the company. I can do X. (laughs) X, (laughs) But you get that mindset that you're running so fast. You're, you're, you're on the path, you're going, and you sometimes don't look left and right to see what else is, what else is kind of going on. But it is, it, the brain is a funny thing when it comes to that stuff.
1: That's neat. All right, if you were to go back to your 21-year-old self and give yourself some advice, because clearly we were not going to listen to our parents or anybody else when we're 21, uh, what would you tell yourself at 21 that you now know to be true that you wish you'd known earlier on when you were starting your career?
0: Uh, oh, drink less. Well, maybe we drink more. I don't know. Um, look, drink better. I look, I, for me, it's actually pretty simple. Um, work better with others. Hmm. Right. That, that was my, if I look back at my early part of my career, my ability to, I, I felt, and I, I still feel that I have a, a good ability, not a great ability, to excite people and to lead them and that's you know and I think that's that's useful it's certainly in my role and and there are understand something I'm saying I'm good at it I'm passable right mm-hmm. I don't suck at it <laughs> uh, The thing that I've, I've struggled with and I struggled with it back then and I've got slightly better now is the ability to work together with others uh, in, a, in a in a constructive way versus just leading them right understanding the voices that are out there collaboration these are things that i didn't know back then were so important um uh but i think would have would have helped
1: those are cool matt quinn chief operating officer from TIPCO. thank you so much for sharing with us today on the second in command podcast i really appreciate this
0: that was cool man thanks for uh thanks for letting me spout nonsense for uh for 45 minutes this was amazing thank you You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.